I'm Michelle Yeoh, and this is No Denying It, the UN Climate Action Podcast. At most, the lifespan of a worker honeybee is about six weeks. But in that short time, a single bee can harvest from several thousand flowers in a day. A single colony can visit four billion, billion with a bee, flowers a year. When we think about bees, perhaps it's about getting stung or putting a spoonful of honey into our tea. We might recall that they're disappearing at an alarming rate and worry about the consequences for agriculture. But most of us don't think of beehives as a database of information about local ecosystems. Because bees from a very specific colony can visit 4 billion flowers a year, and that is the data in which we also need to monitor you know, floral biodiversity and ensure that we are aware of what's happening in the ecosystem. This is Tariq Alolemi. He helps businesses partner with nature to prevent climate change. Now that's something that helps the scientists, that helps the data that we need, that helps to inform better climate adaptation strategies, and that directly helps the bees because the scientists are then able to respond actually quite accurately to care for some of the survival rates in particular colonies, um, where there could be actually elevated levels of pesticides, of heavy metals. Not only does Tarek think of beehives as a database, he thinks of ocean currents as delivery routes. He thinks of trees as miraculous factories that turn rain and sun into breathable air and building materials. Essentially, the methodology has been, I have a problem that I need to solve. Nature is also impacted by this same problem. What are the partners, natural and also human partners in my ecosystem that are invested in this problem as stakeholders? What are the skills that we have as human beings, as communities, as businesses? What are the ecosystem services that are available to me? What are the particular skills of the species in my ecosystem? And that's the, the bedrock then of innovation, of when you bring that together. Actually, what is the partnership that we can have that both helps to solve this environmental social challenge, both for humans, also for nature, and that really brings out uh, sort of the best in both. We talked to Tarek about partnering with the planet and renewing our spiritual connection with nature. He spoke with our producer, Rachel Ward. So my name is Tariq Lalemi. I'm calling in from Bahrain. Most of my work is around reconciling human-to-human to human-to-earth relationships. And much of that is around trying to create communities of purpose around systems that are able to solve the challenges that we're faced as human beings. Human-to-human, human-to-earth. Can you talk me through that a little bit, what that means? Well, of course, humans are part of the earth. So in re reconciling and reconnecting to ourselves. We're also reconnecting to the earth. I think a lot of times our relationship to the earth and our exploitative nature and its destructive nature is also reflective of how we are with each other in communities and I think in society. And that is not separate to how we are and needing to reconcile with our wider earth communities. And you work with businesses to sort of help them solve, I think, what we would think of as business problems related to sustainability. How does that connect back to the idea of uh, communities? Well, I think it's a wonderful question because it depends on how you define a community. A business is also a community. It's a community of people. What, you know, happens in a business 
is not separate or disconnected from the social systems in which they're in, from the environmental context in which they find themselves in, and also in going back to nature. There is no business, no industry that is not impacted or affected when the relationships with our biodiversity, with our wider ecosystems, if that is weaker, business is also weaker as a result. And I know sometimes you don't make that bridge or don't make that connection, but I think it's something that we need to return to as a core and really also putting you know, nature at the center. And if you have a business that's in a neighborhood, that's in a city, which is actually not creating conditions that are conducive to the flourishing of that neighborhood, one would question why should they exist at all? But also then it's a question of where do you reorientate our purpose? One of the things that I've noticed about your writing is that you often use the language of startup culture. Like you talk about how nature has put in billions of years of research and development and that natural phenomena are open source innovations. Can you talk a little bit about why you choose words like that? I think the challenge of our time is translation. You know, depending on what kind of schooling, education, background that you're coming from, for the most part, we're not fully scientifically literate about the world that we live in. And I have a lot of deep compassion because you can't expect any one person to fully encompass and understand and make all those connections in the way that, you know, someone maybe has spent their whole lifetimes really cultivating a knowledge towards. And I think it's a responsibility for those who are coming from you know, those climate backgrounds, environmental backgrounds, to also think about how is it that we're really translating the truths that we know. And there's pros and cons of using metaphors because metaphors can always be lost in translation. But it's also really about putting things in perspective. You know, if I take the example of nature, nature needing you know, 3.8 billion years to reach the point where it's reached, that that is you know, research and development in itself that nature has achieved the SDGs billions of years ago before human beings even you know, showed up. That provides a structure for how we can also think about our own survival and our own thriving. And I feel that we need to yeah, meet people also where they are. And I you know, use those in entrepreneurial metaphors when it comes to the startup scene, same for business and, and also for other fields such as faith. SDG, Sustainable Development Goals, is, is what that stands for. Can you talk a little bit about how nature has achieved its SDGs? Yeah, absolutely. So the UN Sustainable Development Goals represent a set of goals, compass almost for humanity, and the path in which we need to follow in, in our development, encompassing 17 goals, uh, 169 targets. But of course, as human beings have set out our development agenda, for you know, what we need to work towards in areas of gender equality, of water, of peace and conflict resolution. You know, nature has its own ways of development based on its zero waste models, cooperation, building modularly, democratization. You know, we can look at these specific models of development and look at actually nature as a whole across you know, every species on earth, across every single bioregion ecosystem, there are patterns which consistently show up no matter where you're looking. And that pattern is a blueprint for what regenerative development looks like. It's also a far higher measure of sustainability than what the SDGs are. And it's certainly aspirational for us as human beings. But it's also, I think, a way of thinking about nature and the world in a way which is full of hope. Because essentially what it's saying is that if I'm in a neighborhood and there's mangrove forest next door, 
um, or even if I'm in a city and there's colonies of ants, we're learning from these species that are thriving in the exact same environments that we need to solve our own problems. So if nature has figured out what large-scale sustainable cities looks like for its own particular habitats, for how it organizes its societies and the particular conditions we are also in, then it shows a roadmap of it's actually possible. It's within the realms of physics and chemistry and biology for us to reach the world in which we're seeking. And so as a consultant, your job is to sort of do that translation work of like take those ideas, those metaphors and talk to businesses or NGOs or governments about how to actually take inspiration and execute. Is that, am I understanding that right? Yeah, so that's absolutely one part of the work that we do. You know, another part to that is really translating that into real Know, innovation systems that we can work with, thinking about those problems and new frames for, for those solutions. You talked about sort of the, the natural types of relationships in nature, like cooperatism and democracy. It strikes me that that is a different paradigm than the way that our economies currently function. And I'm curious about how we bridge that gap because extraction and competition have really been ingrained in us culturally as like the way that the world works. And I think you've, you've talked about internalized capitalism as a, as a thing that people experience. I'm curious about how we kind of break out of that and see bigger than the way that things are currently work, working, but not working. I think I'll start from the perspective of business. You know, when you think about capitalism and, you know, shareholder capitalism in particular, and whose profits have really been built upon the destruction of the natural world, it's come at the cost of nature. It's come at the cost of many species. It's come at the cost of indigenous communities who have been traditional stewards of those ecosystems. It's come at the cost of marginalized human communities whose livelihoods have been entirely dependent on natural ecosystems and they've been destroyed. And we know that this is not a sustainable model. We know that we can't continue on this path and that you know, we need to start to shift the way that we think about capitalism, about what we mean by shareholders, and also what we mean uh, as community. And I think it also goes to the deep question of what are we really prioritizing and what are we centering when we think about how we're organizing the world? Um, so are we centering everything around profits? And the unfortunate answer is yes. I think for the most part, for I think Western you know, quote unquote society, and, you know, what that looks like when you're prioritizing, you know, profits or shareholders versus what does that frame look like when you're centering humans and centering the planet into that. No matter where you are in that, there is a natural stakeholder, an ecosystem, individual species that are going to be significantly impacted, involved in, or integral to that success. Now, success should be measured also based on, you know, are we destructive to these natural stakeholders or are we regenerative for them? When we look at nature, sort of going back to those metaphors, of course, we can value nature's ecosystem services at you know, over $100 trillion. That doesn't even touch the surface of the sacredness of nature. That doesn't even touch the surface of its true real value. But if you think from a perspective of value creation, how can you even think about destroying that kind of asset? It's a useful framework because I think a lot of folks, 
particularly in the business community, see addressing climate change as a good thing to do, as sort of a virtuous thing to do, but not a survival thing to do for their business. Like, obviously, it's an issue of survival for us as a planet. (laughs) But I think because so much of shareholder capitalism is this idea that your shareholders want to see returns every quarter or however often. And so you you fall into these extractive relationships. So my question is, how do you get businesses to really focus up and understand that this is about their bottom line and not just about like a you know, feeling good about being green or, or whatever? You know, what I find interesting is also when it comes from that mindset of you know being a little bit more virtuous, but then also want to invest in things such as conservation, it can become problematic because then the view is, you know, nature as something to protect. Nature is something that we need to conserve, which is absolutely needed, isn't important. But what I think the shift that is needed is, you know, nature doesn't need our protection per se. Nature requires our active collaboration. Nature requires us to go into a fair trade agreement with it. Nature requires us to think about how we can learn from nature, you know, how we can partner with nature. You know, if nature has these open source innovations, we're actually not leveraging either for our good or actually for the good of other ecosystems. We don't think about forming trade deals with microbial communities for all the wonderful ecosystem services that they provide. We don't form consortiums with our forests. We don't form coalitions with our oceans. We don't develop relationships with other ecosystems for our scaling strategies. You know, the natural world is our greatest social and economic partner. When you talk about the open source innovations of nature, I wonder if there's an example you can give us um, of a system or an idea that nature is sort of honed to perfection that you think is worth examining. You know, there's an incredible wave already of innovators who've been taking this approach and starting to think in these ways of what would it mean to partner with nature? You know, whether that's the Ocean Cleanup Project, which is partnering essentially with ocean currents to clean the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, you know, whether that's, you know, social entrepreneurs in, in France who are partnering with bees uh, from a colony because bees can collect 4 billion environmental data points annually. We can map out an entire ecosystem We can actually look at all these data points in which bees are visiting uh, every single day, and those data points are flowers. You have in parts of Southeast Asia, monks who are partnering with trees and ordaining them as being these sacred beings, because those who are tree loggers don't want to be cutting down monks. You know, there's, I think, many examples and case studies around the world like that, where essentially the methodology has been I have a problem that I need to solve. Nature is also impacted by this same problem. What are the skills that we have as human beings, as communities, as businesses? What are the particular skills of the species in my ecosystem? And that's the the bedrock then of innovation, of when you bring that together. Actually, what is the partnership that we can have that both helps to solve this environmental social challenge, both for humans, also for nature, and that really uh, brings out uh, sort of the best in both. I'm curious about the example of the bees. This is a specific project where folks are partnering with bees to understand data about the environment. The idea is that for the public, you know, bees provide uh, a valuable data set actually to analyze the environment. Because when you look at it from the perspective of food security, the three out of four crops grown for human food depend on in part, you know, pollinators. Pollination you know, leads to the production of many fruits and vegetables, 
and we rely on that for our food security. At the same time, we know that pollinators are disappearing at very alarming rates. And, you know, we know that healthy bees are critical for securing global food supplies. And the social enterprise biodiversity started to look at, okay, how can we look at partnering with bees to help monitor food security and also monitor environmental health in a particular ecosystem? So unlike maybe a traditional manual collection sort of system, where you know they would go manually, take a sample portion of pollen, which is retrieved, analyze that data, extrapolate that data, look at the quantity and quality of floral biodiversity in a particular system. Rather, they created a, a scientific tool, which was called bio-monitoring, which was used to monitor environments of any given area of you know, analyzing samples from beehives. So they worked out a method where they wouldn't harm bees during the process and basically found that that was a far more effective method than doing it um, manually. Because bees from a very specific colony can visit an area which has 4 billion flowers a year within a 1.5 kilometers radius. So by comparison, that's around 700 football fields annually. And that is the data in which we also need to monitor you know, floral biodiversity and ensure that we are aware of what's happening in the ecosystem. That can be done manually, of course, but you can imagine how long that would take to do so at that kind of scale of 4 billion flowers compared to what bees are capable of. Now that's something that helps the scientists, that helps the data that we need, that helps to inform better climate adaptation strategies, and that directly helps the bees because the scientists are then able to respond actually quite accurately to you know, where we need to actually care for some of the survival rates in particular colonies, um, where there could be actually elevated levels of pesticides, of heavy metals. And again, it goes from the shift of, are we using bees, taking their honey, or are we actually thinking about what are really bees doing that are unique, that are providing us this open source data, which we're not actually leveraging and utilizing? And how can this actually you know, work for both scientists and social entrepreneur, as well as the bees in a given uh, system? Wow. It truly is regenerative. It's like an, a, an infinite loop of the bees tell us what's going on in the local flora community, and then we can check in on the bees learn from them, but also see if there's a stressor on the bees and then adjust that. And if there's a stressor on the bees, it's probably also a stressor on us as humans. So in addition to biomimicry, another thing you've studied is divinity. And I'm, I'm curious about why you chose that and how these ideas of, of nature as a metaphor and nature as a partner and divinity connect for you. Well, it's a big question. I've always been very inspired by the, uh, the Sufi tradition, the Sufi past or the mystical aspect of Islam. And there is a beautiful tradition in that um, space, which is looking at, we must read nature almost as if it is scripture. That nature is really the ultimate book, the lesson, the classroom, the teacher. And of course, we have our holy books and we have the wisdom of the sages and the prophets and the prophetesses and all who came before them. But actually nature in itself is that scripture. And I think for me, biomimicry, connecting to that is one way to, to do that in a little bit more of a practical way, because um, essentially with biomimicry, you're trying to read you know, nature's model, you know, trying to read the way that the natural world works and try to emulate that. At the same time, I also think our environmental crisis is at its core a spiritual crisis. 
I know that many listeners may be millennials or Gen Z, and I think we all carry this deep longing to integrate our whole selves. We have this deep longing to integrate our identity, our work, our education, our sense of maybe what's larger than ourselves, whether that's connecting to you know, higher, um, higher power, whether that's connecting to nature, spirit, you know, whatever it is that you feel connects you to the deepest core of what grounds you to the universe. We need to really reunite our personal you know, development paths, our personal values, our personal spiritual consciousness. We need to help further cultivate that consciousness and connect that to our pursuit of social justice and development. So I started with saying, you know, reconciling human to human, human to us relationships, um, and it's also reconciling spirit as uh, something deeply woven into, I think, all of those measures. It's a type of poverty to think about well-being or happiness as just a function of how well-resourced you are, like how, how your economics are. It feels like as humans, we've lost our sense of what's a need, what's a want, and how we can actually have good lives versus just trying to make it through in the system. Absolutely, and it's, and it's that ancient wisdom, and it's the wisdom that every indigenous people's major group to the UN and every single speech keeps repeating. And I think it's really about how do we then bridge you know, the, the ancient and the emergent? How do you really connect to and still honor these ancient principles, these principles that have served us well as humanity for many years? And what does that look like in our modern context? And I think, you know, from that space of faith-based perspective, or even not a faith-based perspective, just a spirit-driven perspective, there's far more possibilities for then how you address you know, things like climate anxiety. You know, my response to climate anxiety, I think one of the, the biggest containers for me is around love stories. In a space where we tell a lot of stories that induce anxiety, I think it's important on one hand, that we don't disassociate with that. We stand in front of the mirror of really what we've done as a human community. They're really um, not in a space of denial about the problems in which we face. And at the same time, that if we just focus on fear, despair, and climate anxiety, in which there's plenty of, it's going to be a little bit difficult to go back to those deepest modes of knowing. And I think, you know, telling stories that inspire a love of nature, I think telling stories that spark visions of hope, telling, you know, love stories about the power of community, things that really spark hope in people's vision and their souls is as equally important. And I don't think we get into that space of even thinking of love stories as a climate adaptation strategy unless we're, we're allowing ourselves to breathe to calm our breath and to start to connect to our deeper ancient wisdom. I'm curious if there are, if there are particular strengths that are contained within Islam that relate to climate change, like particular pieces of wisdom or, or scripture that relate to this, this work that we're doing right now. Yeah, it's a beautiful question. And I think a question for a podcast in and of itself. You know, I think one way is you can read the entire Qur'an as a meditation on creation, as a meditation on how we are required to care for each other, and also how we're required to care for, for our non-human companions. I think the, our entire scripture in, in, in that form can be read in that kind of meditation. 
at the same time through many prophetic sayings, um, through many scholars, through many saints and sages over the years, have really stepped into this wisdom, as I said before, of reading nature as a scripture, of really looking at if creation is a reflection of the beauty of the beloved, then how can we destroy that beauty? What does it then mean honoring that scripture and making sure that scripture is not something that's just in a book, but scripture is living, that scripture is thriving, and really all of Islam uh, puts that into perspective from the context of human beings as a steward, and not as a steward that owns or has dominion over anything, not as a steward that owns the keys to the park, uh, but a steward that is a very humble employee at that park. Uh, a human being put on this earth with the role of uh, raking the leaves, uh, tending to the trees. And I think sometimes there can be this misperception, especially with faith-based think traditions, that it's really about that dominion, that domination, but actually not, I think not at all, and definitely Islam. It really comes at it from, I think, from that place of, uh, of looking at yourself as a servant to the earth, a servant to the species around you, um, and how you may serve uh, yeah, the communities that you are a part of. And hopefully in the very short time that we have in life, and the limited breath that we have, um, that we can do that. I think it's really useful to think about that idea of service versus dominion. I, I think for an individual, that's a really empowering idea that like, I'm not responsible for the entirety of solving climate change, but I do have a role to play. And I, I kind of want to move into sort of like an advice giving mode or, or thinking about action and, and what people can take away and actually do from this conversation. And you've got this series of tools related to the public planet partnership framework. I'm wondering if there's maybe almost like an, an activity that people can do after listening to this conversation, sort of a first step into a journey of um, becoming more active on the issue of climate change. You know, climate change is a systemic issue and no one person, no one organization, no one government can solve it alone. Although some governments can solve it a little bit better than others and some governments should, uh, should do a little bit more. However, having said that on, a, on an individual level, um, you know, there still is a U-sized uh, hole in that solution and system that you're invited to fill. First and foremost, what does my life look like in partnership with the natural world? You know, if you're someone in the public sector um, who actually has the portfolio in which you need to think about how do you really integrate nature into work that I'm doing? Or as an individual who has, you know, agency in their neighborhood um, or whether you're indeed an entrepreneur. You know, we talked about metaphors earlier and a beautiful exercise that I um that I love is uh, IO tree, which is around reframing nature as technology. And it's a really helpful tool for how we look to shift how we're thinking about nature and maybe how we're thinking about different functions of technology. And essentially what the exercise is, is it involves you looking at the species in your ecosystem, selecting it and trying to rewrite it as if it was a technology. So as an example, there's another beautiful podcast that I love called The Crypto Naturalist. And there's a wonderful quote from there, which says, you know, if you write out the basic facts of trees, but framed as technology, it sounds like impossible sci-fi nonsense. 
Because if you start to look at, you know, nature or rather trees as technology, it's self-replicating solar-powered machines that synthesize carbon dioxide and rainwater into oxygen and sturdy building materials on a planetary scale. Now, of course, you don't want to put nature into, you know, those kinds of parts, but it can be very helpful on the road to really reconnecting with nature in this way, to, to think about it in the frame of technology or in the frame of language that we're used to so that we can better kind of get into that, uh, that sense-making. You know, climate grief and even climate denial is not inevitable. It's not inevitable that we should have a water-scarce future. It's not inevitable, you know, that we'll live in a future where it's too hot to ever place our bare feet on the ground. And I think to live and act as such for me is, you know, an, another form of climate denial, because I think that there is a future in which we can step into where all that I've just said actually doesn't happen. It's one pathway, I think, of our climate future, but it's by no means the, the final story. We are already in partnership with nature. Whether or not we are good partners is up to us. As a species, we have made decisions that have led to the destruction of the natural world for the sake of profit and convenience. That profit-centered approach has already led our planet to warm more than one degree Celsius over the last century. That has disrupted a delicate balance. Storms are more violent now Ice that has been frozen for millennia is melting. Greenhouse gases previously sequestered in that ice further contribute to global warming. It's a terrible cycle that we must stop now before it becomes irreversible. It's time to center the planet. To do this, take some time to observe and learn about the natural world. Consider nature's zero-waste model. Soil nurtures plants, which grow, propagate, and then decompose, enriching the soil so the process can repeat. What would it look like in your life to leave the metaphorical soil better than you found it? At a household level, you can commit to a day a week of generating no waste. You can find a local compost drop-off or do an online assessment of your energy use. If you own a business, you can finally make that call to the energy auditor that you've been putting off. Stop using plastic packing materials for deliveries. Replant a lawn with native wildflowers. Put heating, cooling and lights on timers. And then think about how to grow something. Search for efforts for Extended Producer Responsibility or EPR where you live. That's the movement to make manufacturers responsible either physically or financially for disposing of their products after they're spent. Or learn more about public banking, an alternative to private banks. Public banks invest in the community they serve rather than the short-sighted fossil fuel economy. Then it's time to enrich your soil. If you're a business owner, you can literally partner with nature by joining the Business for Nature Coalition, part of the UN Environment Programme. You can set specific, measurable goals for your business's waste reduction and green technology. 
nature and humanity are dealing with the same challenges. So next time you're facing a problem, ask yourself, how has nature already solved this? And then let it be your teacher. Because it makes a world of difference when you center nature. There's no denying it. No Denying It, the UN Climate Action Podcast, is produced by UN News and Good To Do Today. Our producer at UN News is Connor Lennon, and Natalie Hutchison is our promo and distribution manager. Our producers at Good To Do Today are Emma Jacobs, Jay Venables, and Rachel Ward. Our managing producer at UN News is Matthew Wells, and our executive producer is Mita Hosali. Keith Frund and Braden Alexander are our audio engineers, and our theme song is by Memory Palace, courtesy of Marmoset. This episode features music from Artlist. Many, many thanks to Mayan Mojado, Carlos Islam, Paula Bustamante, Fang Chen, Martina Donlin, Pratishita Jane, Robert Nashovsky, Regina Merkova, June Park, Ezra Sergi, Sam Tracy, Matilda Folino, Freesound.org, and the UN Environment Program. Find more stories about climate action from UN News at news.un.org.